This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.8, Family Men Like Us. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, longer time mecha lover. And I'm Nina, anime fan and sometimes film buff. This week we are discussing Mobile Suit Gundam, episode 8, The Winds of War. Winds of War is kind of a weird title. Not so much weird title as weird translation. Winds of War in English is usually a reference to war beginning. War that has not begun yet, but will soon. Whereas we're clearly already well in the midst of things. The Japanese title is Senjo wa Koya, which we looked up and means the battlefield is a wasteland. So if you've been watching along with us and you have been listening to the English dub of First Gundam, last episode you might have thought that we were crazy when we talked about the new battle music. And that's because, as our listener Ryan pointed out very helpfully on Facebook, the music in the English dub is different. The battle music during that scene, where we were talking about the very strange, discordant, unbattle-like piano music in the English dub is just the standard exciting jazzy Shar versus Amro dueling music. So that's a little weird. Not sure why that happened. We have a couple of theories. We don't have a solid answer yet, but this is really interesting, and it's something that we're going to be looking into and trying to find a better answer. One of our theories is that it's pure localization. Whoever was adapting the anime for an English-speaking market thought that that music would do better there. Another possibility is a licensing issue. The First Gundam localization for English language happened actually quite a long time after the show was originally made, and it's possible that licenses to music had expired or could not be obtained for the international market. Ryan also pointed out the possibility that they could have lost the music. This sounds very strange in our current digital age, but was something that used to happen quite a lot with studios or production companies losing vast quantities of film or music because it was physical and could become damaged or lost in the process of moving locations or just the vagaries of time. And the music isn't the only thing that changed. A couple of other sound effects did too. We don't generally watch the dub because we are subtitles or death sorts of fans. However, after Ryan pointed this out, I did go back and watch this particular episode and I noticed a couple of other sound effect changes. For instance, a lot of gunfire, especially the Xeon weapons, which are conventional machine guns and fire bullets, have been changed to a much more sci-fi pew-pew sort of noise. Ditto the Gundam's Vulcan cannons in its head, which are also firing bullets, but have been changed to a very sci-fi pew-pew-pew-pew-pew sort of noise. So that could suggest that the original recordings were lost or that they just didn't seem like they were appropriate for what in the West was viewed as a little kid's show. Or a science fiction show. 
we have these kind of conventions for a reason. Laser fire has a sound that we all recognize, and they may have wanted to be consistent with that for this audience. Final possibility, it's some combination of these factors. A lot of early English localization for anime was kind of slapdash. There were not a lot of resources available for the localization studios. There just wasn't a lot of money on the table. There wasn't a lot of commitment from the Japanese studios in a lot of cases. And frankly, when digital communication was in a much more primitive state, it was just harder to transmit things. It's very possible that the English localization team didn't have the music, that they only got some of the sound effects and they had to make do with what they had. So those pew-pew noises might have come from the archives of whatever studio was doing the localization. And even for sound effects, it can be a licensing issue. It's not something we think about very often, but studios pay vast amounts of money, pay rights to all of their sound effects, to libraries full of sound effects. And if some different group were putting together the localization and did not have access to the same sound effect library, they might have to make do with what they had. In this modern age of digital distribution and international distribution, often these contracts were written when no one anticipated that this show was ever going to leave Japan. And so there was no provision in the contract for international licensing, for international distribution, for redubbing in other languages. And so they might have the rights to use some sound effects, but not others. Ever since the white base touched down on Earth, we've had a few clues to help us figure out exactly where they are. They're somewhere with mountains, and a river, and near the ocean. Alright, that sounds like... Okay, that sounds like a million different places. Thankfully, this episode finally gives us a name for a nearby town. So this episode takes place in and around the town of Saint-Ange. And it turns out that that's a real place in the real world. Saint-Ange is a small town in northeast Quebec, near Quebec City. It's about 30 miles from the St. Lawrence River, 250 miles from the Atlantic Ocean, and right in the northernmost part of the Appalachian Mountain Range. So that matches everything we know about the White Base's location already. No idea how Sunrise, Tomino, and the Gundam team picked this particular spot, though. When I say it's a small town, we're talking about less than a thousand people. The population in 1979 was probably no more than 800. Did someone vacation there once, or was this more of a throw-a-dart-at-a-map kind of situation? The world may never know. Also, in a weird coincidence, a little over a year before Gundam started airing, one of the Soviet reconnaissance satellites, Cosmos 954, lost orbit and crash-landed in Canada while on a northeastward course that would have carried it towards Saint-Ange if the Northwestern Territories had not gotten in the way first. Throughout this episode, Nina and I are going to be referring to a Xeon aircraft that appears in the episode as a DOP fighter. This is a mistake. It's actually a Xeon Lugan surveillance craft, so our apologies. The white base clings closely to the mountains as Xeon DOP fighters surround them. Mirai struggles and occasionally fails to avoid all of the obstacles, but it is only by flying low that they create enough Manovsky particle interference to shelter them from further attacks. Amuro and Frabo watch a widow and her young son looking out a window at the earth below, as the widow tells her son about his father, and Amuro bitterly reflects on how caring she seems, and how different from his own mother. On the bridge, a small group of civilians request to be set down at a recently passed settlement. Lieutenant Reed accuses them of selfishness, but Bright has an idea of how to turn the moment to their advantage. 
They request a temporary ceasefire from Xeon for the duration of the civilian transport. Xeon accepts, as Char reminds Garma that the ceasefire will give them more time to surround the white base with their land forces. Kai blasts a small hole in the side of their transport ship, the Gun Parry, making it look as though it was damaged by a previous Xeon attack. Then the civilians, including the widow and her son, board, along with several members of the bridge crew, and head down to Earth. On their way to land, one of the DOP fighters follows them to make sure nothing suspicious is going on. The Gun Parry fakes an emergency landing. The bridge crew strap on jetpacks and head back to the white base, while most of the civilians leave for the small settlement they saw from the air. But the widow and her son head off towards Saint-Ange, her husband's nearby hometown. The DOP follows them, its pilot noting that, as a family man, he is worried about them. Amuro, waiting inside the Gundam and hidden in the gun parry, sees the Xeoncraft pursuing them and fears the worst. He follows, too. The DOP drops a canister near the woman and child, which turns out to be a small shelter full of supplies, and not the bomb that Amuro had feared. But he is not hidden well enough, and the DOP pilots see light shine off the Gundam. A brief firefight follows, and the DOP crash lands in the lake. Back at the white base, Kai and Hayato are fighting off a Xeon attack, and we get our first glimpse of the gun cannon in action. Just as things look grimaced, Amuro arrives, attacking the Xeon forces from behind, just as Bright had planned. Garma's troops are forced to retreat to formulate a new plan. On the ground, the widow tends the wounded DOP pilots, who both managed to swim to shore, and they all wonder how the battle is going. She notes that regardless of who wins, the battle will make more widows and orphans. The DOP pilots leave for their rendezvous point, suggesting that the woman and her son take shelter for the night before rejoining the rest of their group. When she explains that they are looking for Saint-Ange, he tells her, this is it. This barren waste and crater lake are all that's left of Sanage. As the young widow and mother looks around her and sees no sign of the town that once existed, we finally understand why the title of the episode is The Battlefield is a Wasteland. It's a shame that they went with Winds of War. I think Battlefield as a Wasteland is more evocative. I like it better as a title. Also, doesn't the Winds of War refer to like precursors to war? Whereas here, we're already in it. We're not talking about hints that the war is coming. It's easy to pick apart translator work. Translation is actually very hard. <laughs> For reference, the transport helicopter machine used by the crew of the White Base in this episode is called the Gun Parry, because everything in the show is named Gun Something. It's piloted by Gun Ryu Jose and carries a crew of Gun Fraubo, Gun Amuro, and Gun Kai. Parry like Admiral Parry? I don't know. We'll have to research that. That seems like the obvious one, but I also can't think of any reason why this transport craft would be named after Commodore Parry. But you're right, Commodore Perry, excuse me. For those of you who might not have studied this part of history, Commodore Perry is the one who showed up in Japan with a whole bunch of ships and forced them to open their ports to American shipping. As I remember the story, it was a small number of ships and a large number of cannons. Uh, yeah, I mean, the cannons are the significant part of that, yes. Would you get some Amuro characterization this episode? Not a ton, 
but we get what is becoming his defining character trait, which is that he is pretty messed up about his mom. Clearly, here's that mother complex coming up again. While there's no particular bitterness in his voice, Amuro clearly resents his own mother. I heard some bitterness. Okay, well, I thought he sounded more resigned or sort of in awe. This, what's his line? It's something like, Are all mothers mothers like this? (laughs) And like this, he means caring and kind and loving and... Physically present. Thinking about their child's best interests. I will say, however, the moment that they land and the widow says, oh, I don't remember there being a this big lake here. I knew. Immediately, I was like, oh, the, the lake is where the town used to be. The town is gone. No more town. And through the mother and child, we also see the humanity once more of the Xeon. I think the Xeon pilots get probably the most sympathetic characterization. They're friendly. They're nice. They are concerned for this mother and child who have wandered off into the wilderness. They drop off supplies for them. As he mentions, as the lead pilot mentions to his co-pilot, Garma doesn't understand family men like us. They see their own wife or mother or sister or neighbor. Amuro worries that they're going to go do something to this random woman and child who are alone in the wilderness. He's thinking of the enemy as the enemy. Full stop. They're the Xeon. They're evil. They're a threat to me and everyone I protect. And then he sees that what they drop is not a bomb and they don't shoot. They're dropping supplies. And he tries to hide because he doesn't want to give away his position, but obviously light glinting off his scope or whatever. And the minute that he shoots at them, I think, oh, and now they're about to die for their trouble. But they, but they didn't. Don't. In a rare Gundam happy ending, happy-ish ending, the pilots of the scout plane survive. But we see them survive in a rare twist for Gundam. It would be almost required if this were Western animation to show the pilots bailing out at the last minute or somehow surviving. But in Gundam, usually they do the opposite. They make sure we see the pilot dying. This actually comes up later in the episode because when Amuro is throwing his shield as a weapon and destroys both a tank and then a Zaku with it. When he throws the shield into and through the Zaku's torso, we actually get a very brief shot of the pilot in the cockpit. I didn't as, as notice the that. That's through the awful. Cockpit. Yeah. As opposed to friendly pilots who we see swim away after their ship crash lands in the lake that was St. Agnes. Anja? Anje. I think they say it sort of ag- ag- Anji. Anja. Anji. I think she says it like Anji. Don't criticize our pronunciation of this word. It never comes up again, and we're not going to figure out how to pronounce it correctly. Also, what does correctly mean in this circumstance? She's using a Japanese pronunciation of an ostensibly French town name, but maybe not French. Could- it's a French town name, but I think they're in North America right now. So unless they're in Quebec, and I don't think they're in Quebec... Well, I was completely wrong about that. They are in Quebec. It's an English an English, an English pronunciation of a French word. Spoken by a Japanese speaker. Yes. So there is no correct pronunciation. <laughs> in episode six, I touch briefly on the idea of moral and emotional distance from an enemy. And we see that concept become really important in this episode. 
I noted at the time, there's no real effort made to give Amuro emotional distance from Zeon. We don't hear people talk about how evil Zeon is and how terrible or the moral superiority of the Federation or anything like that. And then in this episode, while Amuro doesn't really see it necessarily, except for the supply drop, we get the opposite. We see the enemy humanized and made more sympathetic, more relatable, more real. That's something that the show has been doing all along for the audience. There's been a real effort to make Xeon seem not like the evil empire out in space, not just a new monster every week, but actual people, real emotions, real feelings, and to force the audience to confront that, even as we see them getting gunned down episode after episode. But this episode does show us that Amuro has, probably for his own sanity, probably around or after his breakdown in episode six, created that emotional distance for himself. When he sees the scout plane turn around and go back towards where the refugees were, he is afraid that they are going to gun down that mother and child. And that's why he goes after them. He's shocked when they drop the supplies. He thinks it's a bomb until he sees the parachute come out. Well, and to be fair, you know, they had no qualms about shooting up the white base when it was full of refugees, when this exact same mother and child were on the white base, that didn't stop them attacking it. But as we noted earlier, it's very different attacking human people versus attacking machinery. And the line that the mother gets towards the end of this episode does bring all of this home when she points out that Amuro might not be attacking civilians when he's fighting, but regardless, there are a lot of civilians who are going to be affected by this battle. A lot of widows, a lot of orphans. I think we get one of the first hints as to Kai's true grievances in this episode when he says, I guess it doesn't matter what we do after it has been uh, said that, ah, we are entirely dependent on the Gundam and Amuro, we're counting on you. Because yeah, one of Kai's main beefs with this situation is how illogical it seems to be overly dependent on one person and on Amuro and the Gundam for all of their security needs. I think Kai is resentful that he is not getting more credit, that he's not viewed as being a significant part of the crew. Right. I don't think he necessarily expects credit because he isn't really doing anything yet. He does want an opportunity to contribute. In episode six, after Amuro has had his breakdown in the middle of the battle and gone kill crazy, when he comes back and he ignores the welcoming committee, Kai says... Don't act so cool. You're not the only one out there fighting. There have been other moments, too, when Kai has suggested similar feelings. Well, Kai mentions in the midst of this very tricky plot so that they can get around the Xeon forces that surround them and mount a pincer attack, that he likes this kind of mission. And that could mean he likes a mission where he's important, or it could mean he likes a mission that is sort of sneaky and tricky. It's a mission where he gets to be more clever than somebody else. For the most part, we see him being very game and not very snarky. Bright is there on the bridge going, all right, are you guys ready for the gun tank? And it's, yeah, I got a good look at the terrain. Let's do this. He appears to have volunteered to solo pilot the gun cannon in this episode. We don't see him do it, but I think the implication of that scene with Bright is that Kai has volunteered to be the pilot. 
Then we have Kai in the other mobile suit, which I don't think we had seen before now, the all red mobile suit. Only in background shots. Okay. Sometimes we'll see the Gundam and the gun cannon and the gun tank all together. And I think a partly disassembled one got blown up in episode one. Mm. We see him and Zayla be nice to each other. Zayla is nice to anyone who's piloting. <laughs> Don't make it weird, Amaro. She's only nice to you because you're piloting. She's not flirting with you. Not like Fraubo, who is flirting with everyone in this episode. We'll come back to that. Let's finish up with Kai first. In a moment that maybe will establish some kinship between Kai and Amaro, we see Kai go into a like sped up version of the battle madness. He is clearly ready, and then he is clearly very afraid. He's sweating. There are tears in his eyes. He's panicking, clearly, all from being in this situation that clearly he didn't anticipate quite what it was going to be like, being the target of so much fire. What I thought of during that scene was actually Amaro's first time in the Gundam. When Amaro first starts piloting the Gundam and he's taking fire from the Zaku machine guns, He's panicking. He doesn't realize that Gundam's armor will protect him. Mm -hmm. And then he starts firing, completely exhausts his ammunition, firing randomly and nonstop. Kai does basically the same thing, although mm -hmm. he manages to actually destroy a few targets, which is better than Amuro managed. And he's got more people shooting at him. Amuro had to deal with two Zaku, as opposed to all those dops. And then Kai has Amuro's back. He pushes that other <laughs> mobile suit off a cliff. <laughs> that was great. To protect Amuro. That was a great moment. That felt like a very Kai sort of attack to sneak up behind someone and push them off a cliff. Sneak, sneak, sneak. <laughs> yeah. It's the sneak. It's the sneak. <laughs> no one's going to get that. <laughs> but they should. It's appropriate for this episode because this is a cat and mouse game of 3D Minofsky chess. So the other person you mentioned was Frabo, who we usually see at like maximum caretaker, right? She's looking after the kids or she's looking after the refugees or she's looking after Amaro or all at the same time. Our first glimpse of her in this episode is Max anime trope, which is romantic falling on each other. Although they don't linger on it in the way that they would in an anime that's more concerned with romance. But the camera cuts to Haro, and we don't actually see Amuro and Frau slowly picking themselves up. Or really reacting to the fact that Frau like, fell on top of Amuro. Except that Amuro will be blushing later on in the episode whenever Frau says anything even remotely flirty to him. And that falling atop each other trope happens again later in the episode. It's a classic. So here we see Fra involved in a deception. She is clearly part of selling it. She's part of the distraction. They really need to make it look like they had to make an emergency landing. The transport's been damaged and hide the fact that they are using the transport to get the Gundam around the enemy line enclosure. Encirclement. <laughs> yeah. And Fra does not seem at all scared by this. I think she seemed more scared when she got taken hostage. Although she hasn't seemed super scared for most of this. I she mean, hasn't, she hasn't seemed particularly scared since she watched her mom die. Well, yes, I was going to point out since that first episode, she doesn't seem terribly frightened. It's like there's a thing that happens to you, like some sort of psychological phenomenon after experiencing that sort of thing. And then we have her waving at the surveillance ship pilots. 
And winking. Waving and winking. Waving and winking. It's true. Well, she waves first, and Amaro's like, what are you doing? Cut that out. And she's like, it's fine, whatever. Are you jealous? (laughs) And then he blushes. And then she winks at one of the pilots, and then he blushes. Yes. Well, she winks at one of the pilots after they leave the transport, and they're on their way back to the white base. And I don't know if she's intentionally trying to be distracting. That seems logical. She doesn't want them to think about, oh, wait, what if the transport still has something on it? She doesn't want them to circle back and look at the transport. What this episode really reminded me of, actually, is the classic of French cinema about World War I, Grand Illusion, which I can't remember if you've ever seen. Nope. But themes of the film are deeply humanist. Essentially, all of the things that humanity have in common and the pointlessness of war. The film is about World War I, but has no battle scenes that I recall. It's all about the relationships between the different soldiers. The film focuses a lot on the shared experience of humanity, on the connection between all people, even on different sides of a conflict like war, and on the pointlessness of that conflict because of our shared humanity. Seems like it could be an influence. Yeah, I do feel curious about Tomino's taste in film now. We know he trained to be a director, one assumes he has an accompanying love of film, but if there were particular directors he liked, genres he enjoyed, favorite films of all time. Well, as we know, we can't trust anything Tomino says. (laughs) It's all lies. But I have read an interview where he was talking about his cinematic influences. He said he likes Kurosawa for action scenes. And I do think you can see that in the choreography in a lot of the mobile suit battles. And then he likes Ozu for the slow moments. Interesting. For those of you who don't recognize the names, Kurosawa is most famous in the United States for directing Seven Samurai. He did a lot of other period films set in that time. His most famous films are all period films from the sort of warring states and shogunate time. He did do other films in a very long and prolific career, but those were his most famous. For action scenes, those are probably the films that Tomino is talking about. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Especially because most of them involve duels. Most of them involve sword fights. For reference, Tomino has also said that there is no samurai influence in Gundam, so you know he is a liar. I wonder if he meant that philosophically rather than literally. And then Ozu, who is much less well-known in the West and a little harder to find his films, focused a lot on slice-of-life kind of movies. Movies that focus a lot on daily interactions, normal relationships between people. I haven't watched any Ozu, but I remember you telling me about one movie. The whole (laughs) plot revolves around two children who want their parents to buy them a TV. Yep, that is the film Ohio, or Good Morning which is partially about that. The kids go on strike because their parents won't buy a television, so the kids won't speak to anyone. And it's also about the social significance of small talk. It's a very lovely movie. But yeah, it's a movie that talks about small everyday things and why those are important. Back in episode five, you talked a little bit about the idea of hometown. And this episode brings that back up 
both because of these refugees and their insistence on getting back to Earth, getting back to the hometown. For the mother and the child, hometown is the term they use. It's this very powerful idea. And it's not even her hometown, but it's the family's hometown. It was her husband's hometown, and she wants her child to grow up in her husband's hometown. And, and Lieutenant Reed even expresses shock. I never thought I'd hear that word in a place like this. Right, that, that the concept would even be brought up, would even be mentioned in these circumstances. And it's gone. There is nothing left of it. You really cannot go home again. Finally, we have Char's continuing keikaku. Podcaster's note, keikaku means plan. (laughs) (laughs) This little cat and mouse game that he's playing with Garba is very interesting. Yeah, Char seems to be working at least one step ahead of Garma. There's a scene here where he's clearly figured out that the white base has managed to sneak a mobile suit around behind their lines. And he waits until just the last moment when Garma can't actually do anything about it before telling him so that later he can say, I told you so. But it's unclear to me whether Shar actually figured this out well in advance of that scene, because when the gun parry first pretends to crash land, Shar clearly suspects something is up. And then says, oh, no, this is good. It buys us time to prepare. And he says something like, oh, I was just being paranoid. And we don't know how many steps ahead Shar is. But it's clear that he doesn't have Garma's best interests at heart. No, definitely not. And we see some of perhaps the reason for his disdain for Garma when he says that Garma's privileged upbringing has made him weak and soft. Well, this is our first hint that Shar is not privileged himself, given that he is an officer, given how people treat him, given the fact that he went to the academy. We have every reason to assume that Shar is just as privileged as Garma until that moment. Shar even carries himself with an aristocratic kind of swagger. And now that Garma has failed pretty spectacularly, he can sweep in and save the day by volunteering to venture out in their next sortie. At the end of the episode, when Garma feels devastated by his defeat and says, how will I ever impress my sister now? Well, no, he says, how will I explain this to my sister? It sounds like he expects her to be particularly vicious with him. And Char makes a comment that uh, the command about the commanders having a responsibility to keep morale up on the front lines. And I'm, I didn't totally understand what he was getting at if he was hinting that that his sister might not be too harsh because it would draw attention to the failure and potentially damage morale or... I think in that moment, Char is just saying, like, buck up. <laughs> don't don't let yourself be visibly upset about this. You have to maintain morale. Char says something right before that. And I remember thinking it was significant, but I don't remember what it is. So I'm going to go back to the tape. Do it. Shar says, you'll have a chance to redeem yourself. But we don't think Shar wants Garma to redeem himself. So what is Shar up to here? This is another layer in the Keikaku that we don't fully understand yet. I don't know. I assumed that what Shar is looking for is an opportunity to redeem himself. Because he failed twice. Then he brought the situation to Garma. Garma has now failed several times. I think Shar feels that he has already been vindicated, especially by today. Well, but he wants to win. He wants to defeat 
the Gundam as a, as a point of sort of personal pride on his reputation as the Red Comet, on his skill as a soldier. He wants to win. I was a little disappointed that with all of the romantic falling, we never had a Shar and Garma <laughs> scene together. Maybe there's an earthquake. Unaccustomed to earth gravity, Shar stumbles, Garma catches him. I don't think that is quite the tenor of their romance. <laughs> this episode reminds me a lot of the classic French film Grand Illusion. A couple of thematic points that I'd forgotten, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but that seem relevant to Gundam as a whole, include the importance of social class. In Grand Illusion, aristocracy and officers have more in common with each other, regardless of the fact that they're on different sides, than they do with other members of the army. We don't have a clear grasp yet of social class in the Federation, but it's very clear on the Xeon side. And we've had a few hints of it in Sela's conversation with Bright early on, and definitely we'll get more insight into that as the series progresses. The other major point that it's unclear yet whether or not Gundam agrees with is that Grand Illusion refutes the idea that one soldier, no matter how brave, no matter how honorable, no matter how well they complete their duty, can have an impact on a great event. One German character in Grand Illusion lost her father and both of her brothers in battles that were considered German victories. Several soldiers who escaped the POW camp plan on going back to the front. But the movie implies that the idea that the two of them are going to make a difference is ludicrous. I feel like telling you what Tomino actually said would be giving away spoilers. <laughs> but in some interviews, I have read that Tomino found that idea of whether or not an individual person could affect the outcome of a war to be very inspiring. Well, and we see it in the episode when everyone is like, we're counting on you, Amaro. Everything is counting on the Gundam. But it's, but it's not. We see throughout the episode how many parts of this plan wouldn't have worked without other members of the crew. Like, yes, the Gundam is important. Yes, it's a big part of their plan. But if you'd removed Ryu Jose piloting the gun parry, if you'd removed Kai in the gun cannon, if you'd removed any other of, you know, a dozen different pieces, it also wouldn't have worked. I'm very impressed that you got gun cannon right on the first try. <laughs> We also talked a bit about some other directors who Tomino cited as direct influences to his own work, Kurosawa and Ozu, both of whom were quite a bit older than Tomino. Kurosawa was born in 1910 and Ozu in 1903. He cites Kurosawa specifically in talking about his action sequences. Kurosawa's action sequences were noted for their use of axial cuts, which is where the camera changes distance through a series of jump cuts rather than through tracking, dissolves, or zoom. He would also do a lot of what they called cut in motion, where a character action is depicted in two or more separate shots rather than in one continuous shot. Several episodes back, I think maybe in episode one, we actually talked about how that's done in the first couple of episodes of Gundam. Yeah, especially uh, with impacts, things like explosions or hits, but can also be done with really any character action. He also emphasized using sound as a counterpoint to the image. He would often use sound to ironically comment 
on the image displayed, not just to reinforce what was being shown. And for that, think about the music choice for the big battle scene at the end of the previous episode, where there's a very unbattle-like discordant piano music playing while Amuro and Shar fight in freefall. I think even the sort of exciting jazzy tunes that play when he's fighting Char are a little discordant in that way. Because that music to me doesn't convey fear or panic. It conveys excitement and movement. But we can tell that Amuro is feeling amped up. Thematically, Kurosawa often focuses on a heroic champion emerging from the masses to produce something or to right an injustice. He also focuses on master-disciple relationships on a technical and spiritual level and the recurrence of cycles of violence in human history. We have a very obvious heroic champion in Amuro, but we also don't have that master-disciple relationship. There is no one to teach Amuro how to be a Gundam pilot, except, I would argue, maybe Char. Maybe. In an odd way, his fights with Char are the only thing teaching him how to be a better pilot. Each one is instructive. Each one, he learns something important. You're right. I agree with you. I think this is one aspect of Kurosawa's influence that Tomino rejects quite consistently. There are no masters or guides, and if they are, they're fatally compromised and weak. Or betray you in the case of most of Bright's senior officers. Single tear for Captain Paolo. Tomino has talked about his own work as an animator, and the people he's identified as having the biggest impact on his skill set were contemporaries of his, people he saw as peers rather than as mentors. Now we come to Ozu. Stylistically, Ozu used a lot of direct cuts or static shots of objects between scenes. There's very little camera movement. He would also do ellipses. He would not show highly dramatic or highly emotional moments. You would see what happened right before and you would see what happened after. In Ozu films, these are typically things like funerals or weddings that are not shown. However, this is something Tomino does quite a bit with interpersonal reactions or sad reflections on the parts of the characters. We see Amuro and Frau crash into each other when Mirai hits part of a mountain <laughs> with the white base. And this is a very common meet-cute, right? This is a thing we've all seen in romantic comedies and in other anime. In anime, it's so much of a trope that we have the addition of usually people fall into some sort of sexually suggestive or embarrassing position. The guy gets slapped, people blush, someone gets a nosebleed. It's a pretty popular trope. And even though later in this episode, we see hints as to the romantic tension between Frabo and Amaro, we see her tease him that he might be jealous. We see him blush. Tomino doesn't focus in on that moment of physical contact between them. He doesn't linger on it. We know there's tension. He doesn't need to spend valuable seconds drawing it out. Similarly, when Amuro first thinks about what happened to his father, this is not a long, drawn-out moment. It's very brief. It's right at the end of an episode. We know it's there. We know it's lingering. But he avoids melodrama by not spending a lot of time on it or a lot of focus. In this episode, we see Kai really step up, but we don't get a whole sequence of scenes of Kai sitting in his bunk, thinking about what everyone thinks of him, staring longingly at a photograph of the gun cannon. It's true. We see his behavior and we see his behavior change. And we know that that means something. Ozu was quoted as having said, I think drama is something without sensational incident something you can't easily put into words, with the characters saying everyday things. And I think that's also evident in the dialogue of the series. 
even when people are talking about very emotional topics, it's fairly spare. People are being polite and contained. And we know that within that politeness, <laughs> within that control, there are a lot of feelings. But we don't need to see all of it to know that. Thematically, Ozu focused a lot on the family and changes that a family unit experiences. For example, young people marrying and leaving their parents behind. Clashes between modern young people and their more traditional parents and the older generation. Mm. Dissolution, disaffection. Mm. You know, <laughs> do you want to say something? No. Okay. I just want to make noises. There was a sympathetic sadness to Ozu's depictions of people. And he ennobled the humdrum and the middle class. And in almost every scene that's not a fight scene, things are very humdrum. People sit in beds at the med bay. The little kids help hand out food. I remember very distinctly, and this scene is memorable because of how unmemorable it is. But in one of the episodes, there's a whole back and forth about whether or not the orphans brought hot water to warm the milk for the baby. And that the drama, the real drama of the series is not duels. It's not firefights. It's all of these people trying to be normal. Way back in episode 1.5, when we talked about people returning to live in the irradiated exclusion zone around the Fukushima Daiichi power plant, Nina mentioned that the concept of hometown owns a special place in the Japanese consciousness. That wasn't the right time to talk about it, but Lieutenant Reed and the unnamed mother in this episode leave us no choice. There are two words that are used to mean hometown. Kokyo, which is the word used in the episode that Lieutenant Reed never expected to hear in a place like this, and furusato. I couldn't find a definitive explanation for the difference between those two words, and they seem to be used more or less interchangeably, except that furusato is maybe a little bit more common and maybe a little bit more emotional. Both are derived from the same source, words that mean old village. Lindsay Morrison, a professor at Musashi University in Tokyo, wrote that there are few concepts in modern Japan that carry as much ideological or emotional weight as furusato. Wrapped up in ideas about nature, cultural identity, and the nation, it is both a way to understand the social, political, and psychological changes that resulted from Japan's modernization, and a reflection of the Japanese people's deepest held beliefs about the home. There are dozens of movies, books, and songs named Furusato. Probably the most significant one is a sappy ode to the rustic natural charms of some generic hometown that has been sung by every sixth grade class in Japan since 1914. There's something ironic about the millions of city-born Japanese children singing about how they remember chasing rabbits on mountain slopes and fishing carp out of pure streams, and how they will one day return to that imagined home once they have achieved their goals in the world while the children actually born in the increasingly depopulated countryside continue fleeing to the cities the first chance they get. But that increasing dissonance between the imagined childhood and the one actually being experienced might be part of what gives Furusato so much power. It is in the small towns of the countryside where the heart of the nation, the quote, real Japan, slumbers. And you can see this in anime, in Summer Wars, Totoro, Barakamon, and so on. And other countries have similar ideas. Of course, this is not uniquely Japanese. Just watch basically any American Western or even Hot Fuzz for a British version of the idea. Crucial to the idea of hometown, Furusato, is that it is not just the place from which you came. It's also the place to which you will eventually return. The place where your children will be from and where, at last, you will die. These last four episodes, ever since the White Base started its descent to Earth, have all been about returning to the hometown. 
The coffee farmer talked about it, the old rioters demanded it, and now the mother in this episode, who wants to raise her son in his father's hometown, expresses it in the clearest way. Hometown is embedded in the Japanese language, too. There are special phrases for returning to your hometown in glory after achieving your goals, giving it all up, quitting your job, and returning to your hometown, the special nostalgia you get from thinking about your hometown, the unique traffic congestion caused by everyone trying to return to their hometowns at once for holidays, and, perhaps most relevant for this episode, Urashimata Rojotai, the feeling of returning to your hometown and finding that everything is different from how you remember it. Because, as the show makes clear, no pleasant, peaceful place can withstand the war. It was a common thing during the US bombing campaign against Japan during World War II for children to be sent away from home to places that their parents thought would be safer. How many of them must have returned home after the war to find the places they remembered gone? Okay, so I mistakenly referred to the gun cannon as the gun tank at one point during this episode. What an embarrassing mistake. I know, I'm so embarrassed. But <laughs> we are getting to a point now where we're accruing a lot of different machines. There are a lot of different machines that might be on the field of battle at any given time. Half of them are named the gun something. So let's take a minute to talk a little bit about all of the different technology at play. The three Federation mobile suits. I think of what we should focus on right now. We now have all three of them in play. Oh, is it it's just going to be three Federation? No, no, there are more later. But <laughs> these, these three share a lot of similarities in ways that later suits will not. Okay. These, and I want to clarify. <laughs> oh, dear. What I'm saying now is specific to the continuity of First Gundam and its successor series. The more recent The Origin manga and anime series has a different explanation for how these three different mobile suits come to be. It is significantly different, and it's a major plot point in the origin. So we will eventually be talking about it, but not for now. This is why no one should ever retcon continuity. Like, I understand why they do it, but honestly, leave your old pieces of art alone. Go make new art. Don't just keep returning to the old stuff, rehashing it, making it more confusing for all your fans. But there's money in it. <laughs> okay, so the three Federation mobile suits... Gundam, the gun cannon, and the gun tank were all developed together as part of a comprehensive plan to produce Federation mobile suits to compete with Xeon's Zaku. Xeon developed the Zaku first, using as their basis what were called mobile workers, which were a sort of proto-mobile suits used in the construction of the colonies. They were then given armor, weapons, upgraded in various ways, and turned into the early, early combat mobile suits that eventually resulted in the Zaku. The dominance of the Zaku on the battlefield convinced the Federation that they needed to build their own mobile suits, and that's where we get the V-Plan, or V-Project, or Vincent plan Don't worry about the names. The point is the Gundam Project. And that produced three mobile suits with distinct roles. The Gun Tank is a long-range heavy artillery mobile suit. The Gundam is a close-range melee fighting mobile suit. And then the Gun Cannon is somewhere in between. It provides long-range fire support for the Gundam. The idea being that all three of them are going to work together in concert. Which is very different from what we've seen of the Zaku, which all basically have the same capabilities and armaments. We've seen a slight amount of variation in their weaponry, I believe, but otherwise they are essentially the same machine. That is exactly correct. Mm -hmm. 
probably I will mix up the names at other times. Gun Tank and Gun Cannon are close enough in terms of where tanks and cannons are in my brain (laughs) (laughs) that I will probably confuse them again. I apologize. I will do my best to be accurate in naming all the technology. And if I'm not, I'm sure Tom will correct me. Quickly and happily. But it's a it's a fair mistake to make. The gun tank just has bigger guns and treads instead of legs. Also, the gun cannon looks pretty lame. It does. It's just red with gray accents. The gun cannon, I believe, is closer to the original, original designs for what the Gundam was going to look like. So let's all be glad it didn't. For real. And at some point in the future, we will talk about how those names came about. But that's a story for a different time. How is it that in our talk back, we didn't touch on the jetpacks? <laughs> How did we not talk about that? I got so used to seeing the jetpacks when they were in space and jetpacks make sense that when they were using them on Earth and their capabilities were insane, I didn't even notice. Seriously, everybody's zipping along, keeping pace with a fighter. Nobody's wearing a helmet or even goggles. What height are they even at? How are they breathing? How are their faces not just plastered with bugs? How is their hair still so pretty? It's the future. They have developed really good hair gel. (laughs) Now, the fact that they're keeping up with the DOP doesn't actually tell us very much about their speed. Because the thing about the DOPs is that they don't actually fly conventionally as we understand airplane flying now. They have like a hovercraft kind of thing going on. So that DOP could be going at practically any speed. But whatever speed it's going at... It is way too fast for those jetpacks. Anyway, jetpacks are ridiculous. Yeah. I assume they hoped we wouldn't think about it this much. (laughs) I don't remember the jetpacks having these kind of capabilities in any other episode. We're going to need to keep an eye out for that. I mean, it might just be Deus Ex jetpacks. They needed all of these characters to be on the gun parry, and then they needed all of them to return to the white base, and they needed a way to do that that didn't use any of the other ships they've already introduced because they can't have them go back on a transport. They can't have them go back on the core fighter. They just like needed them to get back to the base and jetpacks were the easy solution. I don't know why they're all there. Like Ryu and Hayato, okay, you're flying the gun parry. Frau appears to only be there so that she can wink at Xeon pilots. And and make Amuro jealous. Ah, motivation theory. (laughs) Or is that next episode? That's next episode. Next episode, motivation (laughs) theory. I don't have a lot to say about jetpacks, just that they're silly. And I want to emphasize again, they make sense in space because you don't actually need very much in the way of propulsion Propulsion. and you don't need anything to keep you up. And everyone in space is wearing protective gear. Even skydivers wear helmets and goggles. I don't know that we've seen any shot of Frau wearing a helmet yet. Maybe they just don't have a cell of Frau wearing a helmet and they (laughs) They didn't didn't have the budget to animate it. (laughs) Next week, we'll return with episode 1.9, Paranoia and Treachery, to talk about, ah, it's just like stealing rations from a baby. Char wouldn't understand what it's like to have a sister. Amuro could have been somebody. He could have been a contender. There's no time now for philosophy. Gundam, jump! He'll kick you apart. Ooh, he'll kick you apart. 
half of the crew are ladies and the guys still act like they've never seen a woman before. Surviving is the easy part, Bright Coon. This is a snacking tomato. Space printers. And have you tried unplugging it and plugging it back in again? Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, the gun cannon is the ideal mobile suit, guys. You may not like it, but this is what peak performance looks like. On any busy street corner, we'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. not going in the podcast. I have power over that. (laughs) I know. So I think the divine, divine, (laughs) I think the divine influence there is pretty clear. There's one thing I think you need to Uh re-record. You were going to say they did what they could with what they had, but you said they did what they had. (laughs) (laughs) Presumably because they felt like it was insufficient to the dignity of the show. Wow. Really? He can sweep in and save the day by volunteering to venture out in their next sortie in the Red Comet. He is the Red Comet. Oh, not the, not the Saku? Nope. <laughs> it's very ominous music someone's playing above us. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Cool. You want to cut it there or do you want to talk more about jetpacks? No, that's all I have to say about jetpacks. All right.